Hi, everyone, and welcome to the special simulcast of the Neil Haley Show and the Love Is Podcast. I'm excited to welcome the host of the Love Is Podcast, Kim Sorrell. Kim, how are you? I know you know when I talk business, I'm excited. That anytime we want to use the word change, especially when we're seeing these crazy things in AI and how marketing's changing and how business is changing, it's great to you know work and talk to people from Franklin Covey. Don't you agree, Kim? Oh, my word. Yeah, Franklin Covey, of course, um, the leaders in leadership and uh, have come out with his new book. A few people from Franklin Covey have written a book called Change. We happen to have the most incredible woman with us today, Dr. Christy Phillips. Dr. Christy, you have a PhD, you've got a master's, you have a bachelor's, of course, leading up to all of that in French and political science, which I think will be an interesting thing to touch on eventually. But welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being with us. We're so excited to have you here. Yeah, thanks uh, to both of you. Uh, small secret, this is my first podcast ever. So, Oh, great. Oh. And this yeah. is my my 9,500th podcast. So <laughs> I have a lot in 13, 14 years. So it's, it's just like riding a bike. It's fun. We just have a conversation. Go ahead, Kim, with your first question. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so you... I'm curious how your background and the things that you've done in life play a part in this incredible book. Change is such an interesting thing. Everybody reacts to it differently. Some people embrace it and are excited about it. Like Neil loves change, gets all excited and geeked. And oh, only, people- only, only certain times, Kim, not going and moving from <laughs> one place to the next. I don't like that change. I like change of business. Said, like- some of the versions of change he likes, Kim. He's, he's a normal person. Some of them are great and others are like that. And, and yeah, <laughs> so true. Yeah, yes. And and I've been in business since I was 18 years old. I started my first business and had some big changes and brought people in even to talk to my staff about big changes when they were happening to try to work through things when big things were happening. And and it really helped. Change is an interesting topic. How did you get on change? Tell us the story of how this came about. Well, sure. So the the book that you all are are talking about, it's got a the logo. It's behind me. Um, but we're we wrote this book and it released in April. Um, but the way that I came to it uh, is that I've been with Franklin Covey for about two years, and prior to that, as a career in organizational development, and learning and development, I was always either a formal change agent and or an informal change agent. So as a formal change agent, it was my job to help make big programs happen or make big organizational change happen. So think about in healthcare when we put in a new um, uh, electronic medical record system, then it was my job to work with the project management team and figure out what's the people side of change? What are the things that we're missing that are going to get in our way because people are concerned, upset, mad about this thing that's going to change how they do their work. Um, And so that's my role formally, but kind of like Neil said, there isn't a person around that change hasn't happened to. And so what we did in in this book that's a little bit different from, granted, the volumes and volumes of change leadership content that exists in the world, is that we kind of tell a story about change. And so we've got a narrative that we call the the river routine, and it gives you an idea about change from the point of view of it happening to you as opposed to kind of an academic understanding of the steps that are needed or the processes that that need to be involved. All of those things are true and very important, Um, but we wanted to give people a way to understand when it happens to you, when you get married, when a parent dies, when a child dies, Um, that's a change. And we want you to understand that's a process and we 
it's a pretty predictable process. That's our change curve. But then people tend to have pretty common reactions, not the only reactions we like to say. We know that there's lots of ways that people behave, but there tend to be some things that people do when it comes to change. And so we either want to move, maybe like Neil and his careers, he's like, hey, I'm not doing wrestling anymore. I'm an education expert. It's time to do the next thing. Um, people want to minimize things. Like when my parents moved me to France, I was like, uh, it's not going to be that bad. We moved from Texas to France, to, just to clarify. And I was like, well, I didn't know it was going to be fine. I was in fourth grade. Um, some people want to wait when change comes, meaning they just kind of want to do nothing immediately, just kind of see how it goes. Other people want to resist. And then you have two different other types of people who quit. Think about your employees who like quit, but stay on the job and are just really disengaged and growly all the time and deeply dissatisfied. And you're like, I wish you kind of just leave already. <laughs> and then you have the other people who actually just leave. So those are kind of the things that we wanted to, as authors, give to people so that it doesn't feel so painful all the time. So are you trying to look at things in two different lenses? As Kim hit me on, I like change. And I'm like, no, I don't. I like change in business. Because I always want to move forward. I always want to make changes. But when you have a deaf alum, like I lost my father a couple of years ago, and I'm in a process of divorce, or I've had a breakup, or certain things in business just come, just doesn't seem like what we expected. And it didn't, it's not planned out exactly the way I planned it, you know, when I started in business it becomes painful because we question ourselves. So what do you say, because I know it's more about developing teams, but how, when your team starts questioning things or somebody else starts to question things about change, how you make it a good thing? Yeah, how you make it a good thing. So, and I would say it's, it, it, we did design it for leaders, but we all, we almost designed it for everyone because you're, what you've just said, Neil, is the thing that I think we often forget, which is that, you're going along kind of in this little blue curve right here. Everything is fine. Things are working. Life is good. And then something happens. And then that's where you have that dip. And sometimes that dip is like really huge. And sometimes that dip is little. And it depends on how much you like the change or how much you don't like the change and how well you are equipped to go through that thing that's challenging. So the one of the things that I tell people is kind of when things are going well over here, think about what we call scanning the environment, right? That's a very business jargony. But another way to say that is just look and see what's going on, right? How's your health? How are your family relationships? Are things just kind of working and going along? Could something happen? And not to be uh, fearful about it, but to think about it from a, a plan perspective. For teams inside organizations, it's kind of like, what's going on in the industry? What's going on with interest rates? How's that business impacting what we do? Are we gonna to have to raise costs because now something external to our business is happening? And that's when you go, okay, well, we could plan for that or at least not be surprised by it um, if we were to be thoughtful about what might be happening all along. Yeah, that makes so much sense. That that really makes a lot of sense to, to be more aware and uh, everything affects everything, right? So, you know, we try to put things into boxes and into compartments and think, well, what's going on at home isn't going to affect what's going on at work. And then what's going on at that company isn't going to affect what's going on with me or or whatever. But but everything affects everything. And yeah. so when there's a big personal change, I imagine there's going to be a big work change. There's there's going to be different dynamics all the time that are happening. You know, you touched on the story that the book kind of starts out with the who rocked the boat 
Uh, can yeah. you expand on that? Tell us a little bit about that, the, the whole yeah. analogy of that. Yeah, so um, we kind of stepped away from what we would call a traditional business book and wanted to give, uh, wanted to have a story that maybe anybody could connect to. When we wrote that story, and, and Curtis Bateman in particular wrote that story, we were trying to think about how do you get people to understand that just the process, that things are going well, something's going to happen, right? That's your that's the interruption. And then at some point, you're going to need to make a decision in the process of that change that you're either going to work your way through it and out of it and get better, or it's just going to kind of leave you where you are and, and just sort of you're not going to be able to improve from it. So that story is an is a narrative that we think is really relatable. Um, so just as, as an example, uh, think about um, changes that either one of you or maybe your listeners might make. Um, if you think about the captain is in the ship, so when you all read the book, it's the first chapter, he's in the ship, things are going great, they fall over a waterfall. Now, did they know the waterfall was there? Not sure. Did they not have maps? Not a clue. Why don't they have maps is a good question. But for whatever reason, the boat goes over the waterfall. And the process of how they get back on course from this unplanned mishap um, is the story of, of the, the rest of the waterfall and how resourceful they become. And then you see inside the, the story these different archetypes of, of likely behavior, quit and quits. Some One of them actually says, I'm just going to get out of this mess. I'm just going to swim to shore. And another one stays, another one of the crew crew members stays, but he's kind of really disengaged, like I mentioned before. The move character is like, we can fix this. We'll be fine. He's ready to jump in and do the next thing, or she's ready to jump in and do the next thing. And then you have other people who are really kind of minimizing the critical situation that might be in. They're not really taking it fully seriously, and they also don't want to overthink it or overdo it. And then you have the, the wait and sees, right? Those are the, the people who are like, the, the character is like, I'll make a move when it seems like it's going to actually resolve favorably, and then I'll then I'll get involved. And you, we all know people like that. Uh, maybe we've been that person ourselves, and that's the the whole point is that we each occupy those different reactions to change at any point in time. Um, sometimes it makes sense to forge ahead, and sometimes it makes sense to wait and see how this is going to play out. But the information that that gives you that I think is really important, Kim, is if you know that you're likely to wait or you're more likely to resist a change, how is that helping you in the change that you're currently in? The goal is to give you insight into how that reaction is helping or possibly hindering where you need to go to get to your next stage in the change. So how do you know what's right as a leader? Ooh, they're all right. And they're possibly all wrong. Um, so I know that's not a very satisfactory answer. No, it isn't. Um, it depends on what you need. So I'd like to use uh, an example from, from one of, of you. So uh, Neil, tell me about what it was like to go from your career in wrestling to really to realizing that one, you were going to make a change or maybe that you needed to make the change. Tell us about that change. And then we'll use the, the river and the model as a way to think about what was right. So it was a crazy rash decision as I've made these crazy rash decisions in my life. It doesn't show my sign of Capricorn. I don't know why, but I am now working on these things at 50 and saying, oh, by the way, maybe I shouldn't be making these rash changes all the time. Uh, but I was, it was 1999, I was wrestling in Bremen, Germany, and I just decided, you know what? I'm done. I'm going to retire from wrestling. I'm getting ready to marry 
And, and I said, you know what? I want to be a family. I don't want to be traveling all the time. And I think I've ma made it to the pinnacle. I went to overseas. I don't think I'm going to get to the WWE anytime soon. It's not going to be good for family. And I want to have a family life. So I'm going to retire and I'm going to go become a teacher. So it was like, you know, a huge change, which now I look back and say it was a good change. Go ahead. A, a good change because I use teaching in my business today. I'm when I work with my clients, I use teaching when I'm, I, I do a podcast because I can come up with any question in the world because I taught for so many years and now I can present, which I couldn't present when I was a wrestler. So I look at this and then I use the branding of wrestling to be able to do a marketing and be able to help people in stories because wrestling's all about stories. So I made that decision, went that trajectory, and then went from way from education into business now. And now I'm in another type of a change. Where am I going to go? Am I going to stay in marketing forever now when I see that the marketing trajectory, because the AI is not going to be forever. So I'm podcasting is the hottest thing going right now for businesses to go become podcast and not many people have done that because other things. So I'm always looking at change and I'm trying to make it not so drastic like I did in 1999 or drastic right before COVID and really look at things in more of a perspective than I did before. But I'm always constantly evaluating things compared to before where I would just make this drastic change. And oh man, it was hard. It wasn't easy to say I'd give up pro wrestling forever and not be part of it. And then that led me into entertainment today. So there goes my, uh, I guess, summary I'm giving you. Well, that's fantastic, right? And so, and then at some point you decided to partner with Kim and even that was a change. So the question that you asked is, how do you know as a leader, what is right? Um, you, you do want to know the outcome. And it sounded like, I'm going to make this up just and correct me if I'm wrong, that when you realized that you didn't want to be in wrestling anymore, that felt like a right decision and you needed to move to the next thing. If you had realized that it didn't make sense for you to be in wrestling anymore, but then you decided to resist the idea or wait or wait until a better idea came along, maybe the opportunities would have looked different. Or maybe because, again, making this up, you seem inclined to kind of, you, to, you seem inclined to, to be a, have a bias towards action, maybe you know that is really standing you in good stead because you you are riding a wave of change, um, in which case it's really supporting you. If, by contrast, um, you had seen in the in the marketplace that maybe wrestling wasn't going to to be a viable business choice for you long term, or you just weren't happy, or you didn't like it, or it's time to do something else. Um, and you didn't make a move, what might have happened? I might not be alive right now because there's some of my brothers that I wrestled with that are passed away that are as young as me or younger or in really bad shape right now. Because pro wrestling, again, is a sport that, you know, with the chair shots and concussions and God forbid, uh, worse things happening, drug addiction, things like that, it wouldn't have been the best bet for me, especially where I was in a place and time. Now, do I, I was I close to getting signed by the WWE? Absolutely, I was close. If I would have kept going, but would that have been the right thing compared to now where they have a lot better developmental thing? It's a lot different, and they're only signing the top athletes from the Olympics and stuff. So it was a it's a different environment than 25, 27 plus years ago or more. So I would say to you, I can't look back. I have to look at the lessons learned mm -hmm. and go from those lessons learned. And say, okay, 
maybe that was the best decision then. Now, if we're sitting here now and I was on a developmental contract at WWE and they're taking care of people and stuff like that, no, that wouldn't have been the best decision to go back and become a teacher. But yeah. in that time, in that place, it was the best decision I felt. All right. Yeah. So Kim, I know Kim will have a question for you, but that was really a good explanation of change. Yeah. And uh, jump in there, Kim. The other thing that we can't show you in this really static model is that this curve doesn't really ever stop, right? It doesn't change. And then you kind of get to your decision point, which we should demonstrate as being kind of like right here. And then there's, there's, you know, you work through the next stage and then there's innovation. Um, it just keeps going, right? Because you get to the status quo. So now you've, you've achieved a different level of status quo, which is things are normal. You're a great marketer. People come to see you and Kim. We, we want to be, you know, on your show. We want to talk to you. Um, so you've created another level of status quo, but it's also at a higher level of performance than you've had before, um, which is the other thing we hope to give leaders, which is if you're going for more performance or you want to get more engagement out of both your people and the outcomes you're trying to achieve, then you can't just stop at, well, that worked. How do we, how do we make it better? And what does make it better look like? And that's a discussion and a team discussion um, or a family discussion. Yeah, that's interesting. And it's, uh, it's, it's like there's a couple kinds of people. I mean, you you certainly said the the five different sort of reactions to change and and how different people react different ways. But yes, it certainly isn't just this line. You don't arrive, right? Like you don't just arrive and then that's it. And then life is just smooth sailing from then on. And that's what you're going to be uh, because change is inevitable. Change is constantly happening. And you either got to roll with it or not. And, and the way you roll with it and leadership uh, through change is huge. It's yeah. huge because if you're not under the right leadership and going through a right, uh, going through a change, I would imagine that the effects of it are not going to be pretty. And uh, so leadership's a big part, right? Exactly how leaders handle the change. We say, um, in one of our, our chapters about how do you get um, the right mindset for change. So to both of your points, there's not only one right, right mindset, but there is a mindset that is a little more agile. So again, back to the sort of jargony business words we use around agility, but what agility gives us is the ability to grow when we need to grow and stop or change or quit when we need to quit. It means that you're always looking out and are prepared for how you might best react to the next thing. Um, given that the next, you may not know what the next thing is. So you need to stay, you need to have a plan, but the plan's got to have some elasticity to it. So for leaders, um, I often say leaders don't have the luxury of being surprised by change. That might look a different way, right? So if you're a leader, um, the two of you are leading this podcast. If for some reason you all discover that podcasts are on the decline, and people are no longer interested in podcasts, then you'll need to make a different set of decisions about what are you going to do next and how do you pivot and how do you leverage what you've done to go to the next thing so that you stay um, ready for the next thing, or as my, my grandfather used to say, stay ready so you don't have to get ready. Um, and that can't always be an easy thing to do. The leadership point per point of view also comes from a, pers a personal perspective. So if you assume that you're the captain of your own ship and maybe you're the only person on the ship, right? Maybe it's a tiny dinghy and you're the only person there. That's fine. <laughs> but if you're leading your ship, then 
it's your job to, de to decide how you're going to move and pivot. And you've got the action of the waves, you've got the action of other people. Um, so I think in addition to not getting the luxury of being surprised by change needs, stay vigilant, or at least try to understand what's going on in your personal or professional work environment. And I think the other thing is that you've got to know that you, you're also not going to know everything. So this is the piece where you also have to be comfortable with ambiguity, right? And so this idea of living in a volatile, uncertain world is a reality in pretty much every place in our life. Um, one of our authors talks about, uh, Marche talks about losing her dad as a, as a younger person and how much of a change that was. Um, again, it's not a business story, but it shifted how she learned to depend on herself and what she learned about how she needed to move and be confident in the world. So, oh, so, yeah, because my, my, my number one talent's ideation, my ideas are flowing right now, according to Gallup, and then strategy. And I'm listening to you and I'm saying, wow, that makes sense. Yes, that makes sense. So I would say at 50 years old, I'm more looking at change more than ever. I'm not going to just jump to something. I'm going to evaluate, but I'm also going to look at what is the market telling us? People, and I can tell even without research, you'd say, how? You just can feel it. Like, for example, you know what's happening just based on certain things, and you can even prepare and say, this is where you're going. And so for my businesses, whatever businesses I'm going to run, I'm going to look at future but I'm also going to look at what's going to be the bet less risk involved in things in my changes. Yeah, it, there is a red bloody ocean of competitor. You, I know you know blue ocean strategies versus red ocean strategies. And having to look at those different things, I'm looking at this and saying, hello, what's going to be the less risk and best reward now? And then how am I preparing for the future in my change in business? My team. What is, what is a team going to look like in five years compared to now? All those things I kind of weigh in discussions, but I need to work on more of the research. And so what are you hoping from this book change is going to develop? That we identify the change, that we're, the changes that are going to happen in the next five years? Are you more a long-term futurist or right now in change? So I am a, uh, probably more of a long-term futurist with change only because we know that it's predictable. Meaning, you know that you're going to be in the status quo, you're going to have a disruption, you're going to have to go through a bit of a challenge, which is the, the upswing before you can get to a really, <clears throat> before you get to uninterrupted or really uh, full of the, the growth that has, you know, full potential and kind of takes you to the, the next stage, what we like to call um, you know, the, the really the unicorns and the disruptors that are making the kinds of changes that we think are so innovative and fascinating, fascinating now, right? Everybody wants to be what Uber was, you know, 10 years ago and is looking for that. Now it's individuals, by the way, it's individuals that are the, now the content creators that are creating something else are those now. It's not businesses, it's, it's individual brands. Individuals, right? And yeah. so you're, what I hope is that people take the book and understand that well, change is going to be predictable. So if my next change is something small, like I'm going to do a house renovation, which we did last year, um, that's its own project. If you put it in the change curve, well, you're going to go through this process where you're going to interrupt your house uh, situation. How is it going to turn out on the other end? And what are the things that you need to do in order to stay? Uh, if the goal is to be happy in the house afterwards and with, with the money that you spent and the people that you hired, then how do you stay vigilant on top of 
those specific things, right? You do the things that you and that you've talked about, which are business related, right? You understand your metrics, you understand the entire intended outcome, you build to that, and then you have to mitigate if something like that does, if those things are not occurring. As a, um, so that would probably be a that's kind of a shorter term version of change. But what I want is for people to take the book and go, oh, if I know that change on any scale is happening, I may have to learn to plan to a different scale, right? Planning to change and pivot in an industry is different than, you know, needing to, to know that you're going to move, right, from, from here or across town, or you're going to move from here to another country. Um, but that's still a change that you get to process and will still have emotional reactions to, as well as uh, behavioral reactions to. I want people to go, oh, I can get good at this. And maybe if I know that it's happening, and I can manage my reactions. I know if I'm likely to resist or quit or just be really pissed off about this, then I can manage to that. So I hope the book is a resource that is really accessible. Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So, okay, Kim, you have your question. I was just on, gonna, uh, go ahead, Kim. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and just a little quick follow-up on that is um, what's also very interesting about that is knowing how other people might react and then being able to work with them because you understand that those reactions are normal <laughs> for people yeah. and that, that it's their reaction. Everyone can have their own reaction. So I, I had a big change in my life uh, a few years ago, Christy. I was diagnosed with um, breast cancer. My husband was diagnosed four months later with pancreatic cancer and he passed away six weeks after that. And it totally changed my life. A huge disruption, of course, and a huge, huge change to life in my forties. And not sure where life was going to go. And it made me question some things. And love was one of those things, what the real meaning of love is. Everybody seems to have a different answer for love. So I went on this year-long quest to figure it out. And the things that I discovered about love rocked my world, just changed my life. And, uh, and I realized that love is something that is not just at home. It's not just with personal relationships. It's in the business world. It's, it's not something you hang up when you get to work, you know, put it in the coat closet and just leave it there. But lo love is everything always everywhere. And so how do you see that? How do you see love like um, with change, uh, maybe in particular, but love and business in general? Oh. So I don't know if you're gonna think me odd, but it's really kind of, I think you have to take uh, love to work. Um, so one of our, our taglines at Franklin Covey is we're the workplace of choice for achievers with heart. And we, we literally mean like that version of heart. What that means to us is, is the environment and the culture that we hope that we're creating with and for each other is one that we do want to get things done. We, you know, we get it, no margin, no mission, we're clear. But we also really want to like where we work. And so you don't do that without strong, connective, tissue of deep emotional bonds and so it's i think it's i do find that people want to separate business jargon from this idea of love um but i think that when there's great deep bonds that matter to you that's what love is right and that's what we want to create at work so to say it another way if if i'm doing a good job of leading kim and I'm helping my, my team see the future. I'm preparing them for the future. I'm, I'm okay if they choose to stay with the organization and I am joyful for them if they find a different opportunity that's outside my organization. 
ultimately, I, I think that I'm actually loving them um, to show up as their whole selves, as their own selves, and for that to be okay. And for that to actually be the expectation that they can have of me as a leader. That, that while I might not say I love you to you know, my, my coworkers on a daily basis, hopefully the actions that I demonstrate with and for them um, give them a great sense of comfort and peace and joy. And all of those things, while not just love, I think are, are elements of love. That's a powerful uh, way of placing it. Last question on change. Now I'm starting to think about this more and more. Uh, I was just going to give this to a friend in the book, but now I'm like, oh my gosh, I might have to read it fast because this is unbelievable. And I hope the you work with Franklin Company. Yeah, we've got an audio version in case you want to listen at one. Oh, did that, I got the audio version too? I didn't know you that. You have an audio version. Oh, okay. Okay. All right. I definitely. So here's my question for you. What do you think the mistake is that people that don't, every day evaluate change in their business on a daily basis. Cause what I'm gathering from hearing you in your life, your personal life relates to your results of your business as a leader, your, 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 your relationships with your clients or customers relates to your, your, your results in your business. So everything around you from your spiritual to everything relates to your business. Should you look at change every day and kind of evaluate it even on a weekly basis, not just a quarterly basis or anything like that. Because change is involving a graph in a lot of ways, as we see the graph on your screen. Am I on the right track? Well, so I would say absolutely you're on the right track. But and I would add to that that it's um well, change is gonna happen. That's kind of the the short story, right? That's the <laughs> That you're not going to get out of this life without some change happening to you. Whether or not you consider it a change from your own point of view, I'll let each individual person or team or group decide that. But something is going to happen to you that is different. And if you're not looking around for it, then you end up surprised by it. And when you're surprised, that's when it becomes really painful. So to be to, to put a really sobering point on it, something's going to happen to each of us we're all eventually going to die. We should probably go ahead and prepare for that. <laughs> prepare for your family, prepare for prepare for your yourself. Um, but your business is going to change. Your life is going to change. And if you're looking for ways that it could change, it might change in ways that phenomenally surprise and delight you, which is a possibility. Um, it sounds like you've made some changes in your own life that have completely landed you in a place you wanted to be or even better than you hoped you could have been. And that's by looking around and seeing, well, what the heck's going on around here and what could I be doing differently? Um, I think that's a version of self-love. It's, it's how you, you know, stay ready. Oh, you're, you're, you're amazing. Dr. Christie, people can pick up the book change anywhere, right? It's available on, on any bookstore online via Amazon, all those different things or at Franklin Covey's website, right? Right. What is the website for Franklin Covey that people can go check it out? It's uh, franklincovey.com. Awesome. And what about you? You're not on any social media, right? Yes, I am on LinkedIn and I have a very, very anemic Instagram presence. So I should probably hire you for that, but different story, different day. <laughs> oh, you know what? We got to talk about that, but I appreciate you and you are amazing. And that was a great special simulcast of the Neil Haley Show and the Love Is Podcast, guys. Take care.
Hi, everyone, and welcome to Special Simulcast, the Neil Haley Show and the Love Is Podcast. I'm excited to welcome the co-host of the Love Is Podcast, Kim Sorrell. Kim, how are you? I know you're excited about our guest, and you know I'm I'm interested as well because I'm into these uh, kind of mystery slash uh, thrillers. So, especially one of my clients is in the thriller genre. How are you, Kim? I'm doing great. Thank you so much. All right. So our guest today is author Richard McNeff, and he's going to discuss Alistair Crowley. And uh, I- I'm interested already, so I'm going to read just a little bit of it before I inter- let you in. It's uh, in 1941, Ian Fleming of the Naval Intelligence recruits Alistair Crowley to crack the recent captured Rudolf Hess by exploiting their mutual fascination with the occult. To fill in the background, Hess's disastrous flight Fleming provides the diary of Albrecht Hossover, the deputy Fuhrer's assistant. In 1945, finds Crowley boarding house in Hastings, where he tutors Will, a fledgling priest. Just to give you a little bit of that, thank you again, Richard, for joining us. How did you decide to write this book? This seems fascinating. Well, I've, I've been I've written other things using uh, quite a lot of writers use Crowley under a pseudonym. People like Somerset Maugham, people like that. But I, I've I've sort of written quite a lot about him um, using his name, and um, I was just intrigued because he li- this a lot of the book is based on fact, and he did write a letter to naval intelligence about four days after uh, Rudolf Hess was captured, offering his services, and the person he was dealing with was Ian Fleming, um, and so I just I just built the story around that. Right, that so- is absolutely fascinating. Like how you must have had to do a lot of research, or do you just naturally know everything, Richard? No, or- no, I did a lot of research. So I, I, I really um, try and build it on real fact, you know. So I, I did a, a lot of reading. Actually, I wrote it during the COVID lockdown here, so it was a. Uh, it was a very, I found it a very fruitful way of spending my time. I I must have read about 50 books around it. And um, mm. so, and it grew out of that. And so when you write about history like that, why this time in history? Um, well, I wrote a previous book about Crowley set in the 1930s which where he's uh, sort of mixed up a bit in the abdication. I mean, there's a lot of evidence that Crowley worked through uh, for various branches of the Secret Service throughout his life, including when he was in the States from 1914 to 1919. And so um, uh, I just I just built a story around that. But I've always been intrigued by the possibility that Crowley actually interrogated Rudolf Hess because Hess was an occultist as well. So uh, I, I'm I'm very interested in this sort of interface between espionage and the occult, which which is um, not something I've made up. There's quite, quite a, a long history and a long tradition of it. If you think about it, the two things are very similar. You know, they're both very secretive, um, built around mystery, et cetera. Yeah, that's true. That is fascinating. Because I've not heard that uh, before, the the co- correlation between the two and that the two would go hand in hand and that you would find the two going hand in hand as you're doing your research. And people 
tend to write about that time and those people. I don't know that I've ever read anything that mentions the occult. So that was that harder to find information on? No, there's quite a lot of information. There's a great, great, I mean, um, there, there's a lot of, actually, there's um, one of the best books about this was written by an American. He's a professor of history at Idaho called uh, Richard B. Spence. And he wrote a book uh, about 10 years ago called Secret Agent 666. Uh, that 666 was Crowley's adopted, sort of one of his uh, adopted persona. And uh, it, it sort of goes right into the story of, of Crowley's connection with the occult. But this goes way back. I mean, Queen Elizabeth had uh, the first in the 16th century. She had a, a court magician called John Dee. And... Um, who uh, actually was the original 007 because it was he was her eyes. It was like the pince-nez. And uh, that's where Ian Fleming got his information from. So there was quite a lot of um, this sort of occult thing going on in the Second World War because, of course, a lot of the Germans were occultists, particularly Rudolf Hess and Heinrich Himmler. Um, and so the... Allies tend to sort of mimic, they used to have uh, produced fake horoscopes, for example, to try and influence the Germans, you know, play them at their own game. Well, that Hitler is an interesting to, area. Sorry, uh, sorry. But also, Hitler is meant, uh, really known to be also big into the law of attraction and astrology. Is that correct? Hitler Actually, and... Hitler was quite skeptical. Really? Uh, astrology. Yeah, he used to say things like, well, if astrology exists what how come that uh twins um don't have sort of identical destinies and things like that but so he he was fairly skeptical but um and after uh hess was um captured in in britain they had a huge crackdown in germany it was called action hess where they arrested all the magicians and the occultists and the astrologers but there was a big influence on 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 the Nazi party. You know, I mean, you you see those rallies, the symbolism, the swastika, all this sort of thing. Um, they, you know, they were quite um, quite dark, quite occult themselves. And the British realised that, and British intelligence realised that, and tried to some extent to play them at their own game, which is why they use people like Crowley. Very okay. Wow, that's fascinating. I uh, I am sure that it would be hard to pack in to one book everything that you learned after reading that many books, I'm sure other documents as well. How did you pick and choose what you were going to use to go into, into this book? Well, I tried to have a sort of strong plot, and I, I'm very – I'm a great believer in economy – you know, also in in like editing and and things like that, and and I tried to construct something that's got elements of a thriller. So obviously, I want to my you know I'm in the business of entertaining the reader, and I want them to turn the pages. So I I tried to keep it as coherent as possible, um, in in that way. Wow. You know, so it's just intriguing. Do you think you're going to do another book on this same topic? Uh, I'm 
I'm not sure. I wouldn't mind. I I I did a previous book. If I this is the book, by the way, just so oh, that's you, a very nice book cover. Yeah, I, yeah this is a mock-up. This is a proof. So um, I'm not. It's going to come out in hardback on October the 31st, suitably on Halloween. Um, that's that's yeah. the previous one I I did. That's already available. Oh that's wow! Available. Okay. That MI5, it's a bit, it looks a little bit spooky. Um, yeah, it's spooky. It's little, yeah, yeah. Yeah, great. Sorry? Yeah, those are great cover design. Uh, and, and cover, as you know, as we all know in the book business, are, it's so important that uh, you grab yeah. somebody right away with your cover. So whoever you have doing it, they, they certainly do a great well, my, job. My publisher, who's called Mog Morgan at Mandrake of Oxford, he'll be very, very pleased to hear what you've just said. Yeah. <laughs> so, no, yeah, but I, I'm pleased, actually. They are they are striking covers and, you mm -hmm. know, hopefully grab people. All right. So, Kim, go ahead and ask your love question to finish up the podcast. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... Uh, um, I lived a year, I dedicated a year to figuring out the true meaning of love. Of, of all things in the world, I did this. And I'll tell you, it was kind of a stretch for me because I have a hard time committing to an entree when I go out for dinner. So to commit a year to something <laughs> was quite a bit, but I did it. And I was mostly in Haiti talking about the occult. I mean, there's a lot of voodoo and, and stuff yes. down there that's been pretty fascinating, pretty interesting. But, uh, but here I was discovering love. And even though your books are, are thrillers and uh, have people on the edge of their seat or hiding under their covers, whatever it is at any given time, um, there's still love has to play a role in your life somewhere. Uh, how does it play a role in your writing? Does love play a role in your writing? Yes, I mean, um, I've got a character in the book who, who, has, uh, who has loving relationships. I mean... Strangely enough, Crowley was a, a believer in, in in love. I mean, his his essential one of his big messages was love is the law, love under will, meaning that love is a prim primordial thing. I think when he said under will, he means that it's you you know in some ways you have to control love. You know, it's uh, and not not get too extreme, but it. But it's very, I mean, of course, Crowley was taken up in the 60s. He was called the unsung hero of the hippies because, you know, he seemed to have anticipated a lot of hippie lifestyle. So, and of course, that was the the big epoch of, of love, you know, that um, unfortunately didn't quite bring it all together. So I, love, love is a very important theme, you know. And, in, and I think you love writing. And I love writing, yeah, and I'm passionate about writing. So for me, it's a sort of something I love to do, you know. So Crowley, let's talk Crowley, really finished the question for Crowley. Why are you so fascinated by him in history? I think uh, two, one reason is because my adolescence was in the 60s and he was sort of taken up and the Beatles put him on Sergeant Pepper and he became this sort of countercultural icon. Uh, Personally, I knew his biographer, the first person to write a biography, just because I lived in the same street. So that was a sort of personal thing. When I've gone uh, on sort of, uh, I'm not a, a, a follower of Crowley, I make that clear. I'm, I'm, uh, but I'm, I've got a very uh, 
shall we say, uh, I have got a fascination, but without, I'm not proclaiming myself as a follower, but he had enormous, also he had enormous influence. So, I mean, I did a, a radio program with uh, somebody I think you know called Deanne Hines last week. Yes. About um, all the musicians who've been influenced by him. So we could talk about art, we could talk about writing, but if you talk about music, you've got people like Jimmy Page, David Bowie, Ozzy Osbourne. We, I played so we played songs by all of them that are actually focused on Crowley. Um, even now with the um, rap and hip hop, people like uh, Jay Z wore a a shirt with the other part of Crowley's message, which is do what thou wilt is the whole of the law. Um, Ab Soul, who's a very popular rap artist, he made a record in 2016 called that. So as an influencer, he was really one of the very first influencers. Um, and I don't think he's, a lot of people perhaps see him as a Satanist or as someone very dark. And he did do some disturbing things. I'm not an apologist for him. But on the other hand, his essential message like this, do what thou wilt, basically means to thine own self be true. Find out who you really are and develop that. And that's what I do with my writing, you know. Fantastic. So, Best place people can find information on you and get your book. Where can they go? Well, they can go on my website, which is www.richardmcneff.co.uk because I'm in the UK. Um, they can find information on Amazon, my author's page. I'm on, I'm on Facebook. I'm on, I'm on Instagram. Uh, I'm posting a lot. I'm actually um, hosting um, an online sort of talk about uh, the, my book at the end of the month on the 31st at, at seven o'clock BST. Um, so um, we're in a sort of pre publication phase at the moment because as i said it comes out at the end of october well we appreciate you coming on this is great information well i appreciate the opportunity i'm very grateful neil thank you all right that was the special simulcast of the love is podcast and the neil haley show take care hi everyone and welcome to the special simulcast of the neil haley show and the love is podcast i'm excited to welcome the host of the love is podcast kim sorrell kim how are you and i know you're excited about our guest <laughs> I'm great, Neil, and yes, I am. Jennifer Silva Redman is a fellow author and does a lot of incredible stuff in the writing world and lives on a sailboat. Jennifer, I've been so excited to talk to you about this sailboat life that you've got going. So you live on a sailboat. What is that like? Well, it's wonderful, of course. Um, it's also, you know, like any kind of adventurous lifestyle, if you will, it's got its ups, its downs. It's uh, somebody likened it to living in a cabin in the woods. It's really fun for the first few days. And then you're like, wow, this is really hard. <laughs> what about Wi-Fi? How do you handle what? that? Wi-Fi is easy for us because we do it through a cellular signal. So it just, um, I have a Wi-Fi hotspot, which right now is hanging from the mast because the higher I get it up, the better Wi-Fi we get. So I li literally like hang it in a bag up on the mast so that it gets the best Wi-Fi. Oh, <laughs> How about speed? I mean, speed, because I was on a cruise ship and it was terrible. You're not far enough out and see on living out there right. that you still can get internet and stuff. 
You know, sometimes we have a problem when we're actually traveling. Right now we're in a marina in a slip in Port Townsend. Um, one of the reasons why is because, of course, to be able to be in touch with you guys and make sure that it would be good enough. Um, but most of the time we don't have a problem with cell signal and that becomes our Wi-Fi signal. So it, we, we, my husband calls us cybernetic nomads. We both work from the boat, so we're tethered to our Wi-Fi. That's fantastic. Yeah, no, what a cool thing. It's um, a kind of like a fantasy, like a dream to live on a boat. But I think for a lot of people, what made you make the move from being a land lover to living on the sea? Well, I married a sailor. And I married a, a, a man who had just been fixing up his boat for many years. We had dated before, but we hadn't seen each other in a long time. I came back to San Diego from New York. You know, the timing was right. He asked me to marry him. A couple months later, we were living on the boat and we took off for Cabo San Lucas, which is about a thousand miles from San Diego. So I knew very little about sailing, um, but I knew a lot about him and I knew a lot about, you know, the fact that you know, I knew we wanted to be together and I wanted to enjoy what he loved. And so we took off and I just fell in love with it. I mean, I'm a San Diego, California girl, you know, grew up on the beach. So it was kind of a wonderful fantasy, as you say. And um, all the other things that, that come with it, you know, are not always, you know, as I say, there's adventure to it. But I just fell in love with being on the boat. I fell in love with traveling and the beauty of the surroundings and Baja, California. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I think I would do the same thing. I think it would be so <laughs> easy to do. And uh, but and you get to get on land, of course, you yes. stop at ports and, and whatever. Yes. What about storm? Yeah. What about weather? You know, right now, of course, we're all thinking of Mexico because there's a hurricane pointed right up Baja California right now. Um, it, we've been through a couple of near miss hurricanes in Baja California, um, but it, everyone down there knows how to handle it. You know, they they tie the boat down really well. If you're in an anchorage, you know, you have your anchor out and you do various things to prepare for it. And of course, you pray that it's going to miss you by 100 miles, which makes all the difference. Um, so, yeah, I, we have a lot of friends down there and I'm thinking of them right now. But, yeah, we've been through some some gnarly storms, as we say. Um, but it, it's always, you know, you you just prepare for it. And then you, you know, when you're in the middle of it, you gut it out. <laughs> you know, it's crazy when you talk about this is that are you ever back on land or only when you dock? That's when you go back on land. Right. Well, we're right now in Washington state, which, of course, is not far from from, you know, um, the San Juan Islands and in Canada and the Gulf Coast and all of that, you know, of, of Puget Sound. So we're all over the place. You know, we'll land at a state park and then take hikes and, you know, maybe spend a couple of days anchored at a park or anchored just on a beautiful beach. But a lot of times it is much easier to be pulled into a slip. So when it's when it's snowing, like it was, you know, last um, November, December, January, the boat was in a slip here in Port Townsend and we had snow on the deck, which for us, you know, Baja and uh, San Diego people was kind of a shock to see to see snow on your deck. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah. No kidding. You know, um, as as a, an author, as a writer myself, I've always had this fantasy of either doing exactly what you're doing uh, or uh, renting a place in Maine up and yeah. with the water in view and and just sit and write. 
what is writing like on the boat compared to writing in an office somewhere on land? It's it's wonderful because you can really be away from all of those distractions. You know, you're not going to have someone dropping by. You're not going to have the phone ringing, you know, when you're really out there sailing. And there have been places like this summer when we were up near Canada and some of the islands that we didn't have Wi-Fi at all, you know, for a week or so. We just kind of unplug. And that's when you really can get a lot done. Both of us write. My husband also teaches screenwriting. So when we're not doing our work, which is writing, we're also doing our joy, which is writing. Um, so during this first trip that I've written about in the memoir, it was really me discovering the writer that I'd always been, but I didn't quite believe in myself as a writer. And I'm sure, Kim, you relate to that. You know, we all go through that. Is it good enough? Can I show it to other people? Can I, you know, make a living at this? And and um, so it was, it was the adventure in it was learning to trust in that and to take the time to just keep staring at the blank page and keep working through the the rough drafts and and uh, and also just kind of trust in the process that, that that I had something to say that there was something that would come out that other people would find interesting well and you definitely have something to say your writing is absolutely beautiful your your blogs and the book and everything that you do I, I love to read your writing your style is great everyone should buy everything that you do and read your stuff so what, well, what surprised you the most in the in the process or you know with being on the boat and writing or what was surprising i, I think the what surprised me the most is how much I just really loved being on the boat. Um, sailing was something I knew nothing about, but I think for anyone who loves, you know, the ocean as I do in nature, you know, it was that quiet, you know, the the being just at one with nature and just floating there like a like a, a little seabird on the water and being able to take advantage. Of course, it's a it's a solar powered, you know, the wind and the and the solar panels and all of that. So when you're ghosting along there and it's perfectly quiet and gorgeous and the sun is shining, it doesn't get any better than that. And of course, it was very surprising to find out, you know, how much we both liked not only sailing and living on the boat, but being in such close quarters together 24 hours a day. That was was, that was a challenge and um it it was something that we just you know either got lucky or determined or crazy or all, a combination of the three <laughs> that made it work and 34 years later we're we're still together and still happily on a boat so Fantastic. the honeymoon continues all right so kim go ahead with your love question for yeah i i love your love story i have to say I, I was diagnosed a few years ago with cancer, and then my husband was four months later diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. He passed away six weeks after that, and um, we had a love story like yours. Like, I think we could have been on a boat and been just fine, just the two of us together. I know that it would have been great, but uh, it made me question some things. It made me question the real meaning of love, so I dedicated a year to figuring out the real meaning of love, and I think you're going to be able to answer this question because you've got 34 years with the man who I'm sure you still probably refer to as the man of your dreams. And uh, what does love look like today compared to the day when you said I do? Oh, it's, it's so much a product of the foundation that we built in those early years, those early weeks and months and then years. It's, it's the trust that we've built, you know, in the, 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 the talking about everything, the experiencing everything, the <clears throat> sorry, 
<laughs> the laughter, the being together, the, as I say, sharing everything, talking about everything, no holds barred kind of conversations, um, obviously emotional, um, just it, that foundation that we built is what is still with us right now that we can still, you know, um, those adventures are still in our heart. And as you say, you can really tell when you're with someone that you're meant to be with and that you're going to be with forever. And of course, unfortunately, tragically, sometimes you're not together forever, but that love never ends and you're together mm -hmm. always. That's powerful. All right. So where's the best place, Jennifer, we can purchase your book and learn more about you? Best place. You you can go to bookshop.org and buy it from an independent bookstore uh, online. Of course, you can go to Barnes & Noble, Indigo, um, Amazon. any, And you can also go into your favorite bookstore because the book is available from Ingram, which is the world's biggest book distributor. So any little mom and pop shop that you love, you can go in and say, I want Honeymoon at Sea, and they'll be able to get it for you and pre-order it. And pre-orders are really important for a first-time author like myself and also for my small um new independent um woman-owned publisher in toronto uh canada so we really appreciate the the um pre-orders if people can pre-order it now believe it or not that's a big huge thing now and it really helps uh get the book a lot more exposure and, and i think people really enjoy it as our quote on the cover says that midwest book review said armchair sailors will love it too you don't have to be a sailor at all well, we appreciate it, Jennifer. Thanks again. It was such a great Thank story. Thank you. All right, take care. You're listening and watching. It was a special simulcast of the Neil Haley Show and the Love Is Podcast, guys. Take care. Who fell on her bicycle. In other words, and it didn't have a seat. So the um, top of the bicycle went into her vagina. And that was the story I got. So on my way to the hospital, I'm thinking as I'm driving, what is this? What is the real problem here? Because it didn't sound realistic at all to have an accident like that. Well, as it turns out, she was sexually molested by her older brother. Hi, everyone, and welcome to a special simulcast podcast. That uh, It's the Neil Haley Show with a podcast called Doc Tales with Rural Doc Allen Lindemann. Uh, Doc, uh, you're branching out. You know, we were talking a lot about your medical career, but now we're going to interview some people, right? And you're know, talking about all these great tips you provide for pregnant women, but now it's time for a new podcast, right? Well, that's what we're looking for. It's not actually, I mean, it's new, but it, and it's, it's in addition. It's not a replacement. So yeah, we're happy about this. Thank you, Neil. All right. So let's talk about we're going to who what types of people we're going to interview and how you're going to kind of tell stories throughout these uh, interviews, which and really give your opinion more. So we get to know, really know the true rural doc, you know? Well, certainly I have a lot of opinions and some of them are unpopular. But DocTales actually started about, uh, I'd say, probably 20 years ago. Uh, we actually had a website on it and it was a story about patients and their encounters with the medical system and uh, sometimes it gets to be complicated in ways you wouldn't even imagine i'm sure i couldn't even imagine what you mean by that the, the, the different things but you saw things in the medical field that you were blown away not understanding what you're getting yourself into right right I, I can give you a couple examples uh one of them was 
a young woman. She's about 25 years old. She came in to me. Well, actually, she presented to the emergency room 15 weeks pregnant. She had gotten a new um, blazer, and it was rolling toward a brick wall. And so she wanted to protect the bumper. So she placed herself between the blazer and the brick wall and crushed her pelvis when she was pregnant. So we had a lot of problems with that. We had bleeding. We had a, a dead baby. We had... Um, and so I went, we took her to the operating room and the, uh, um, trying to stop the bleeding and the anesthetist or the anesthesiologist